walk with them through whatever it is that they're experiencing. Um, They're there to provide emotional support, education, share information about resources, uh, help them navigate uh, different systems. So that might be the criminal legal system or the civil legal system. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the TF Cast. I'm Willis. Hey, Grum here. It is November 8th here in the Solarium. And I'm your host, Jacob Bases. Today with us, we have Julia Haman from the Cata Shelter here to talk to us about what's going on over there and your work and uh, just kind of an update from uh, the past month, DV Awareness Month. Am I correct on that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, Julia, if you can introduce yourself to the audience and tell us about your work there and what's going on. Uh, so my name is Julia Hallman. I'm the Director of Community Programming for CADA, uh, also known as the Committee Against Domestic Abuse. Um, I'll add, oftentimes in the community, we're called CADA House. Um, that comes from our grassroots origins, uh, where we actually started as a house um, that was housing people uh, as a shelter kind of situation. But we actually are... Um, I've grown quite a bit now, and we do have a building, an office building, and a secure shelter facility. So we do go more by CADA now, Um, but commonly people still call us CADA House, so I like to put that caveat out there. Uh, We also have uh, surrounding satellite offices, so our region serves uh, nine surrounding counties around, uh, including Blue Earth County, Uh, and we have, um, I think it's seven satellite offices in um, the surrounding counties as well. So um, although we have a shelter here in Mankato, we're much more than a shelter. Uh, We have community advocacy services uh, to support survivors, and we also have a supervised visitation center here in Mankato. Um, and we do community education programming as well. I don't know how much detail I yeah. should get into about yeah. our services. But I think uh, uniquely, it might be cool if you would just let us know how to contact CADA right up front here where everyone's listening. Yes, there's lots of ways to contact CADA. Um, so we have our helpline, which is probably the most common way, um, 800 Four seven seven zero four six six, I believe. Um, and uh, we have our website, kdamn.org. Um, and on the website, there's a chat feature that folks can uh, reach out through. There's an email form. Uh, also, if people are wanting to talk to an advocate, they can email outreach at kdamn.org. Uh, lots of different ways. Or they can walk in if it's not safe to call or text or or email and they need to just walk in and ask for support we, awesome. we take walk-ins too you so, know oh i i think something that might be really because i i think a lot of people have a good idea of like what kind of uh circumstances might require someone to to uh reach out or like to need this but i i think a lot of times people don't exactly understand what an advocate does so i think it could be really useful for you to like break down what it is that the advocates do because it it is uh it's pretty cool yeah certainly Uh, so the most basic way that i like to describe an advocate is a cheerleader or somebody on that victim survivors team that is there to um walk with them through whatever it is that they're experiencing. Um, They're there to provide emotional support, education, share information about resources, uh, help them navigate uh, different systems. So that might be the criminal legal system or the civil legal system. It might be community resource system. Um, 
and yeah, just kind of be that person on their team that they can go to that's going to understand what it is that they're experiencing in a unique way that not everybody in their life might understand. Uh, it's a non-judgmental, confidential, free service um, that is survivor-centered. So that's another really important piece of advocacy is we're not there to tell survivors what they need to do or how they should feel or how they should respond to their experience of violence. We're not telling people they need to leave a relationship. Uh, we're just giving them information and resources to help them make informed decisions about what it is that they want to do. Sure. Um, and I, I think a little bit later, probably we're going to get into some things about like what makes uh, like Kata possible. Um, but a really important thing to me at least is this is something that people have brought upon themselves to do um, to, you know, make this organization. What does a community that does not have, an organization like CADA, like what kind of options do people like that have? Oh, that's a really great question. Um, I believe that every county in the state of Minnesota does have a victim service organization. It might not be directly in their county, but they mm -hmm. do have an organization that is serving their county. Um, so although it might not be in their town, they should have somebody that they can call. They might not have a shelter. Um, and so there's different kind of levels that of, of services that are provided. But uh, there is a national hotline and there's a statewide hotline. I don't know those numbers off the top of my head, but they're easily Googleable that people can contact and then get connected to the resources that are most uh, closest to them. And are those other programs similar with the uh, with regard to like having advocates and kind of people who understand the process a little bit and can help give advice and or uh, help? Yeah, I think that's the hope. I can't speak for sure. other organizations necessarily because I haven't been there or seen their services, but I think um, a Across the state of Minnesota, I think we generally do a pretty good job of having that advocacy lens. Okay. Um, there's actually, Minnesota is kind of at the forefront of the movement, um, even when it started. Um, and so they, oh. up in Duluth, actually, um, were re really key in how we under still understand violence today. They created what's called the power and control wheel. They kind of pioneered some of the first um, domestic violence transformation programming, which is for people that use violence. So um, I think Minnesota does a pretty good job of, of providing those services and having that victim-centered or survivor-centered lens. You, uh, the question you asked to Jacob was like, how, what's someone's experience when they don't have access to these services? And I mean, without knowing, and I think you answered it a little bit, but without knowing much more, it's like, uh, it could be really difficult to like know what your options are probably. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think that like when I'm hearing it, the advocate approach, like someone who does know a bit more about the options and like as some history of experience with this type of thing, really like having someone on your team, you know, is, uh, is probably just, just huge because I think about that as being something that's probably very, um, alienating or, or like, uh, 
yeah, I don't know what the exact right word there is, but um, isolating, isolating. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's an intentional aspect of abuse yeah, too. Um, sure. perpetrators of violence will intentionally isolate a, a victim to make them more vulnerable to the abuse and make it harder for them to leave and have more power and control over mm. that person. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were speaking to, I was thinking that like another core piece of advocacy is that education. Um, cause mm. lots of people, they might know that they don't feel safe in their relationship or they might know that like something's not right. They don't like how they're being treated, but they might not have the language uh, to really describe their experience. And I Mm. think that's another reason that advocacy is so vital is that we can, we can give survivors that language that then helps them know how to navigate their experience, Mm. identify and be validated in their experience um, and then know how to move forward and heal. Yeah, because you could you could know something that like doesn't feel good, but without being able to describe it, like who yeah. Yeah. who's who's capable of like handling that? Well, <laughs> and I think an important thing about this too, uh, I'm maybe mistaken, but like a lot of people don't want to be identified as victims, and mm-hmm. uh, also a lot of these people are like being told all around them what to do, how to handle the situation. Uh, people are trying to forcibly remove them from the situation. And uh, uh, just like with uh, addiction, uh, these choices don't stick unless they're made, like by the person mm. themselves. So like there's only so much intervening you can do. Mm. The the real root of my question, I think it has been kind of uh, pointed at, was that I, I imagine the circumstances that caused uh, an organization like CADA to emerge is that whatever was happening on account of the status quo was easily manipulated by the people who have power. Like, so if you're trying to isolate someone like, you know, back when women didn't have control of their banking information, like it was normal for them to be easily controlled in that way. Mm. Now that's a common way that people manipulate people is by controlling their finances. Mm -hmm. Um, So like knowing that that could be a form of abuse, like, and having someone who understands that, um, but whereas, like, I feel like if you if you brought that to, uh, you know, a, a, another part of the county or, like, some other government service and said this is happening, they might be like, well, that's not illegal, mm-hmm. you know, um, and it doesn't, you know, speak to the problem. Yeah, that can happen. And that's another piece of, so it's not a piece of advocacy, but it's a piece of Kata's work is um, educating other professionals on signs and that you know, red flags that somebody they're working with might be experiencing abuse and um, how to support them through that, how to respectfully express concern and offer resources if that's what the um, person they're working with is open to having that conversation. We certainly don't want to pass judgment or um, make people feel forced to seek resources when they don't identify that way. But Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Um, I guess kind of like pivot on the the resources point too. Um, How is a organization like CADA funded? How does, how do you find yourselves to be Yeah. Yeah. So we are primarily funded through the Office of Justice Programs, um, which is state funding. And they also, I believe, um, manage our federal funding and and funnel that to statewide organizations, victim service organizations as well. Uh, We do get some uh, local grants and we get uh, donations. We have our annual fundraiser. Yeah. 
Hmm. Yeah, because it, it does seem from just, you know, listening to you talk in, in the introduction that it is an organization that just continuously gives. Like there isn't any, I mean, there shouldn't, <laughs> you know, you shouldn't make money off of that in the way that, you know, you think of like selling a product, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Right. So it, yes. Yep, we are a nonprofit and our services are, are free um, mm-hmm. for, for accessibility. Um, and I guess the, we wanted to talk a little bit more about some recent changes in that uh, program because I know the last couple of years have been, um, I guess, a little bit volatile even through previous uh, um, presidential uh, office holders changing things up and and the the way that these programs are getting funded uh, continuously shifting. So can you t- talk a little bit about what the experience has been like maybe over the last couple of years for an organization like CADA and um, maybe like where things are at now? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so like I said, we're, we're largely defended or largely dependent on that state and federal funding. And so that means we're very vulnerable to um, the opinions and whims of people that are in office and that are allocating those funds. Mm. Um, In past years, we've feared cuts to funding um, and we actually haven't had an increase to our base funding uh, in about 10 years. Um, So basically every year we're asked to do... More, more and more work with less dollars, and that is uh, we're seeing across the state, and I think even across the nation that that's just not sustainable. Um, advocates are burning out left and right. Um, we're hearing from executive directors from organizations across the state that um, we're seeing the same things all over. That just mm. people there's lots of turnover. People are leaving. People aren't. It's harder to hire because um, it's high stress, um, high trauma work. And with that lack of increase in funding, we haven't been able to increase wages and compensate people for their their efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, this year, uh, we were very hopeful that we would get a significant increase because we did have um, maybe a more favorable alignment in our local government, um, and we had a large surplus. Um, and we uh, requested uh, an increase to that base funding and we got a fraction of what was uh, requested. Uh, at CADA specifically, we requested about um, a $1.5 million increase to um, just to be able to maintain the services as we provide them currently while uh paying our our staff a livable wage, having proper health care, affordable health care options, having um, retirement options, and um, having all of the positions that we really need to do the work in a way that's sustainable for for staff and supportive to staff. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we ended up getting a $300,000 increase, so just Mm -hmm. a fraction of what we requested. Uh, And some organizations across the state got much less than that or didn't see an increase. And so um, we're seeing a, a lot of struggling victim or survivor or service organizations. Uh, there was recently uh, a shelter in uh, Minnesota called, I think, 360s Communities that is going to be closing their doors mm. um, this month. And that, you know, we're already short on beds across the state. So that's going to impact our community, too. I mean, when CADA is full, we look across the state of where people can go if they're seeking shelter and to have um, 
one less space is going to make that will impact our community. Um, CADA has also felt the impacts of that funding. We've had to close our um, Southern Minnesota Offender Education Program that worked with uh, perpetrators of violence to help them recognize why they use violence, understand what violence is, and hopefully see a better way of engaging in their relationships moving forward. So our real true prevention work, um, in my opinion. We also had to cut our prevention and education programming, uh, and we had to close a supervised visitation center that we had in New Ulm. So we're feeling the impacts too, and we're seeing the impacts of stress staff and doing everything that we can. And with the increase we did get, we were able to raise wages. But uh, with inflation, I mean, that's going to be <laughs> um, yeah. not have as much of an impact quickly, I think, too. So, And we weren't able to add the positions that we would have liked to to make workloads more sustainable. So, um and we are having to have difficult conversations about where we might have to scale back on the services that we do provide. And that's going to have impacts on survivors and our communities overall, public health, safety. What do you think is causing like uh, the failure to see the need to fund these programs, I guess? is that a, I don't know if I'm phrasing that right. Mm. Do you think it's like a lack of understanding of the importance, people not knowing these programs exist or what they actually provide? Because um, it sounds like across the board, people are asking for funding and getting much less, in your case, like 20% of what you asked for. Uh, I was just wondering if you see any reason for that. Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean... I think it's lack of political will. Uh, mm -hmm. The people that are determining how much money we get aren't hearing from their constituents that yeah. that's what they want to be funded. Yeah, so it's like a vote. It's like a voters' things. They're not going to get more votes by providing these funding, so they don't. Is that okay. yeah, or that's not what they're hearing from their constituents? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think part of that comes to um, a cultural idea that violence is a private family issue and that yeah. it's not a public issue and mm. it's not something that they're talking to their legislators about. It's not something that that happens, but it doesn't happen in my community. So yeah. I'm not worried about it kind of mentality. And not to say that everybody, you know, feels that way, but um, I think that feeds into that. Would right. you say you help mostly uh, or a high percentage of your clients are lower income uh, families? I don't know the statistics on that personally, okay. but I would say I think that's likely more with folks that are accessing our shelter services because yeah, yeah. people that do have more resources are probably not going to choose to go to, to a shelter. Okay. They're going to pay for their own apartment or, you know, yeah, you know yeah. find a roommate to rent with or use their financial resources to find somewhere else safe to stay. So yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. The shelters then probably just provide like a, a very basic like backstop for, you know, the people who are struggling the most and would otherwise be either forced to remain where they are in a difficult situation or cast out and into, I don't know, homelessness or yep. Um, yep. other things. So. Yep, or staying in a homeless shelter or... Yeah, which yeah. isn't doesn't have the resources needed to needed to move forward probably right well yeah yeah the homeless shelters don't have the 
advocacy element right, and they yeah. don't, yeah, aren't informed um, about domestic violence in the same mm. way and aren't able to support in the same way. And I don't know too many with like education programs or anything like that, that I, that I know of around here. I'm sure there are some that exist, but yeah. the, the programs that, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, before the show that some of the programs that you were most excited about or passionate about personally were ones that were off the, uh, like not being funded this year. What were they? And in your experience, like what impacts have you seen through participating in them previously when they were, or I, mm. I believe that they were from. Yeah. So I think what you're referencing, what I was talking about earlier is the closing of our offender education programming. Mm, I um, was the program manager for, for SMOPE is what we call it um, for about a year and a half. And I would say that um, I went into that work uh, apprehensive and unsure about, you know, can can these people that use violence really change and was transformed by my experience working with people that use violence um, and seeing that a lot of them really did want to change and did I did see learning and growth. I mean, not everybody that goes through the programming had, you know, had the same impacts, but um, I think there's hope and I think, um, yeah, people can change and that's going to make for safer communities because even, you know, advocacy is so important, but we're, we're getting involved after the violence has already happened. Yeah, so yeah. if we can intervene, but, to prevent somebody from enacting further violence, you know, that I think that's the goal, really. Are these like uh, court appointed classes or are these things people sign up for on their own? Or? Yeah, so it's a state mandate that anybody that is criminally convicted with a domestic violence related charge has to go through some kind of domestic abuse transformation programming. Okay. Um, yeah. However, it is an underfunded mandate there has been some funding made available for this programming but very limited and um for short periods of time so we weren't able to utilize that in the way we would have liked to um and so we were running on like charging the the program participants themselves for the programming but that really limited accessibility (laughs) of the programming um and it just wasn't sustainable because yeah. even if we were saying we're charging them, not everybody had the funds. Yeah. Well, I'm sure some it. of these people are like fresh out of prison or b- losing their jobs or like th- like they, they committed a crime of some sort, not necessarily that the, they went through a legal process for it, but totally makes sense that people like that wouldn't have access to a program they have to pay for. Right. Mm-hmm. And go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, you said you, you had felt a degree of like transformation. Was that like a, was that like a hopefulness that, you believe that people could change. Yeah. Yep. I think so. And like just really seeing it. Um, I think I tend to be more of a hopeful person in general, um, but actually seeing it happen and then having conversations with guys in group who are like, I'm going to, I'm going to go tell my nephew about this. I know he's having some problems with his girlfriend or I like, I'm talking to my son about this stuff and seeing like the impacts of that, because oftentimes it is a, it is a, it's a social cultural kind of issue. Violence is something that is learned through our family units and, and our culture and our socialization. But to see Mm. the ripple effects of that was Mm. really, um, 
inspiring for I me. I don't think anyone ever explicitly told me not to intimidate people. Um, but I, I, you know, certainly growing up, I was told that I should be assertive and dominant and that if I'm not getting my way, I should, you know, like it, it is, mm-hmm. it is that status quo. It is, it's, you know, patriarchy leaking into what is now more progressive society and still just being there. Like mm-hmm. I feel, I, 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 no one ever told me not to do violence except for like being like, oh, you might get in trouble, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I think it is, you need, you need education to not do the thing, like for yeah. sure. Otherwise you're just counting on people to have the experiences to, yeah. you know, get the empathy necessary to not behave that way. Mm-hmm. Victims are, or o- offenders are overwhelmingly victims. Uh, not as an excuse, but it's just like the the plain truth. Most people who offend offend because they were a victim themselves and never had the proper way to process it or get closure or whatever it is. Is is that something that you saw at all with the education program, where the offenders were in some cases being educated about their own experience? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yep. A lot of people that came um, to the programming had their own trauma experience or. Um, learned it through socialization in like a school culture or, you know, a broader um, family or community culture that they talked about. And we intentionally talk about that in in those groups to help people kind of process those things. Cause you have to, I mean, I also want to say that there's lots of people that experience abuse that do not become violent too. So it's not a direct casual thing. And I think sometimes that's a common misconception. Um, But for the people that are impacted in that way, they need to understand where their belief system was formed uh, that allows them to be violent before they can transform that belief system and Mm. build a new one. Well, uh, you know, we 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 talked about this free press article a little bit before too, and I think we should get into that because a lot of the money that um, was that was causing that hopefulness that you might end up expanding your program uh, ended up giving being given to public safety, um, and so my my understanding is that there it, it wasn't properly earmarked, and there's kind of like a, a a crossing of paths where it's like, well, you know. This was given for advocacy services through there, and then they it basically isn't being done. Like, they weren't properly told that. So it's like, call your legislator, talk to public safety. You're getting that from both sides. And, I mean, you know, my immediate, you know, take would be that the reason that places that CADA exist and are funded is because, you know, services like the police or public safety are not well-equipped to deal with domestic violence. Um you know, they're really only there for crimes that have already happened. Like if you can't point to a bruise or something like that, it's very difficult for the police to do anything. And I, I mean, I've, I've seen that. I Like I, I've seen a person who is, um, you know, being intimidated by their partner and they call the police and the police are like, I, we don't know, like there's nothing. We Like we can see that the house is a little bit trash, but like what does it, you know, what does it mean? Like what's the crime? Do you want to charge him with something? And then they left. <laughs> um mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not saying that's every police involvement, but um, what what exactly happened there? What what's the what's the misconnection with how that those funds were allocated and uh, what's happening with them? Yeah. So like I was saying earlier, we requested the state legislator for an increase in funding. We got a small fraction of what was requested and they said, well, Part of the reason why that is is because we're also allocating these other one-time dollars to counties to use for public safety. And we're going to highlight that 
that those public safety dollars include victim service organizations. And so you should be seeing some of those dollars that are going to counties. And so contact your counties about that. Um, we, in CADA's service area, there's a, uh, about 10 million uh, of those dollars are, are allocated for public safety. And we have not been approached or contacted or given um, promised any of those dollars. Um, when we've reached out to city council members and county commissioners, they're saying that they weren't aware that that funding was also for organizations like CADA. And so it's already been allocated for other um, public safety, law enforcement, fire department needs. Uh, and so they won't be able to, to provide those dollars. But um, even you know, if we just got a fraction, we're not asking for the full 10 million, although that would be lovely, mm -hmm. right? Um, we're, we're just asking for a fraction of that could be really supportive and, and helpful to the services that we provide and keeping it sustainable. So this isn't, a, this isn't something like a call to action issue so much as that uh, um, it's like an accountability with the people who are put forward through the city that like if the money has been sent through um, for that, like it needs to be written in such a way that the people who are spending the money understand that it's earmarked for that purpose. Otherwise, it you know it it, it could be just used for whatever. And I'm I'm sure that you know like I you know I support the fire department um, and what they do. Um, so I'm sure that you know they're using the money very well over there at the fire department. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yes, there is one county I believe that is buying a new fire truck that's very needed. So like cool. we understand, like we don't want to be, first of all, it's kind of unfortunate that we're put in a position where we're competing Absolutely. for resources mm -hmm. with other organizations yeah. that, that are um, doing public safety work. Um, but, you know, if, if it could be shared, I think there is a call to action opportunity. I think specifically more in Mankato and North Mankato, I think there is, um, opportunity to still contact city council members and count county commissioners and request that they allocate a percentage of the funding to CADA. Uh, I think um, we've been sending out postcards um, that are requesting a 15% allocation because that's the percentage of crimes that are domestic violence or sexual assault related. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's how that number mm -hmm. was. That's, that's, and that would get you that 1.5 million number too. That's uh, really impactful, I think, because I mean, a lot of times I, I really like to reinforce these issues where, you know, these are small number ballot issues um, where I think that people, even the size of our audience here, our listenership, um, you know, school board elections, talking to your uh, city council members on something like this, like that could like, you know, having shelter beds is something that like directly impacts the people like these, Absolutely. you know, it, this isn't like a this isn't like a state program. These are state funds going to people who are doing advocacy work. Um, so, you know, I, I, I would really, you know, follow up on that. If you, if you know your city council person and you live here in Mankato, you know, try and try and follow up on that and ask if they know about this issue, what they're doing about it, uh, because it, it, it's important and, you know, to follow, you know, what your money's doing. Yeah, yeah. And if you don't know, it's really easy to find out online. Yeah. Just Google who is my city council member and it'll pop up a website with a link where you put in your address and it tells you mm. who to contact. So. Sure. Um, well, it's, it seems, you know, good to me that we aren't going to lose everything, that it's pretty robust here. And like also thinking about it on a national level, like 
Mankato or I mean, not Mankato, I mean, Minnesota being a place that is now like a sanctuary state for abortion. And it seems like, you know, we're going to get some of this stuff enshrined into law because we have uh, progressive politicians right now who seem to want to respond in that way. Uh, I, I hope that that is a positive situation for you. And I, I really do feel for people who are in uh, reactionary states who are going to be cutting this stuff left and right. Yeah. Um, do you have any insights into what it might be like for people who are, you know, running shelter in, you know, places in the country that are less accepting, or is that just something that isn't a communication going on? Mm, I don't think I understand the question. Oh, I mean like, uh, you know, in places like, you like we've acknowledged that Minnesota is a very progressive area, but oh. like, you know, think about the exact opposite. Like what are the opportunities like for people who are wanting to do advocacy work and for the people who are in need of advocates? And it's, it's fine if you just don't know. Cause like obviously, yeah, I don't think I can really speak to that, but I, I mean, I do know that there are States that have even less funding and you know, they, like mm-hmm. I was saying, they, there are States that don't have a service organization in every County, I think. Uh, and the services that they are able to provide are much more limited. So, um, yeah, it would be unfortunate to see Minnesota become a state like that. Um, I have a kind of another question that you might not know the answer to, but I'm pretty curious on what these conversations look like when you're asking for funding versus like another program. Are these like super database conversations? Is it like whoever gets the most whoever's the loudest in the ear of the legislator is who he picks. Is it uh, like how much of this, it, this talk is like data and analyzation based and how much of it is it you just have to like advocate for yourself as hard as you can? Um, I would say, I think it's mostly <laughs> advocacy. Um, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not in the room when the legislators are making yeah, their yeah, decision. Yeah. Um, we do have a really strong like state coalition. Um, I myself and other members of Cato were up at uh, the um, at the Capitol advocating for this increase in funding, and along with lots of other advocates and. Um, service organization members from across the state asking our legislators to to make sure that we were seeing this funding. And when you're in the room with them, they're all saying, yep, we agree. This is an important issue. We're here to support you. But then somewhere along the line, that isn't translating yeah. to the dollars that we're asking for. I see. Um, and I think, you know, like we were talking about earlier, it just comes down to community support and um, what they're hearing from their constituents. So I I think it's important for people to get out there and contact their state legislators as well and let them know that they're concerned about the state of funding for victim service organizations and the impact that can have on their communities. And I think it's worth pointing out that like uh, you aren't turning to these communities and being like, hey, we need this money so we could support you. You're like advocating for the money from the state and trying to put these programs in without even taking in yourself. And it seems like the number, like really all you're asking for is for people to advocate to you, which is a very easy thing for people to do. So yeah, I guess uh, if you care about this, you need to get on the horn, get, write some letters, send Mm -hmm. some emails. And for someone who's interested in doing that, they've like heard this so far and they're like, I want to do that. Can you like try to reiterate just a little bit of, like the language that might help someone get up to speed if they were going to have that conversation. Like I heard just a moment ago, you said something to the effect of, um, 
funding victim service organizations, but like, what is the language that, um, like that's in the bills or in the funding that would help someone quickly start to have a conversation about the important part? Yeah, I would not say I'm the expert on the best language to use, but that is the language that I use. Victim yeah. service organizations talking sp- or focusing specifically on um, organizations that serve um, survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. Hmm. Um, I think a good resource for that would probably be our state coalition website, Violence Free Minnesota. I'm sure they have all kinds of great talking points and tools for yeah. uh, talking to your representatives. Um But I think really what's most impactful is sharing personal experience or personal connection to the issue, Mm. talking about the impacts in your community um, and what's what's important to you. I think it's best for it to come to the come from the heart rather than a a script. But I do understand that those scripts can make um, making that step a lot easier for other people, too. Sure. And um, do you have any other kind of like. Um, uh, like stories or impacts that you just want to share from your time at CADA that you think could be just like good things for the audience to hear? Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> there's so many <laughs> that it's hard to like focus the the topic on just one clear, solid answer. I mean, I've in my I've worked at CADA for eight years, and in that time, I've worked in every program. So I started as a shelter intern, and I saw the direct impacts of people like having need having an immediate safety need and being able to to provide that and I also saw the impacts of when we were full and having to safety plan with people about how to uh, sleep safely in their car that night Mm. so I see you know I see what we can do and how beneficial it can be when the resource is available and I also see the need for for more resources in that area Mm. Um, I've also worked in community advocacy providing that legal advocacy and resource support and um, education that that we've talked about and have had many survivors say that they don't know what they would have done without without Kata's support and how instrumental it was for their safety and their um, mental, emotional, physical health, you know, all of the above. I've seen in the offender education work that I do, I've had people that use violence talk about how... Um, how impactful that programming has been for them and share direct examples of how they're being different in their current relationships, their newer relationships. And I'm, you know, I'm hopeful. I mean, they, they would be very excited to come at the end of programming and tell me about all the, the new things that they're doing. And, um, and similarly with our supervised visitation center, um, we've had people that came into programming very reluctant and, um, not wanting to, engage in that kind of programming thinking it wasn't really for them and then they leave and they're like wow this really changed my um my perspective on the way that I parent and how I want to co-parent moving forward I can't say that happens every time but I I would say across the agency I have heard um positive impact stories about how this work is really changing people's lives and and keeping them safer. Um, Similarly to our community education programming too, people um, are are learning things every time um, we're sharing information about these issues and that can only lead to safer communities. Hmm. You mentioned a little while ago that like the turnover is kind of high for this job and for you as someone who's been a part of it for so long, like... um, 
what's kept you engaged with it when it seems difficult to, you know, for, for the organizations to, to hold on to people like that? Yeah. I mean, I would say that CADA in particular uh, has put a lot of effort and focus into building a healthy and supportive workplace culture. Mm. It's a workplace culture like uh, on a uh, unlike any other I've ever engaged in, um, we're really conscientious about uh, having open dialogue, direct ethical collaborative communication. Uh, so then that helps. I mean, when you're in a high stress, vicarious trauma kind of scenario, sometimes that can easily come out in toxic ways in the way that we interact with other people that we're working with. And so we talk about that and we talk, give uh, tools to to navigate that and prevent that. Mm. Um, and I, I think wellness is a priority and our understanding of trauma also applies to how we engage with the people that work in the organization. Um, so overall, it's just, for me, it's a really great place to work. I actually mm. left um, and did AmeriCorps for a year, and then I came back to CADA. I worked at yeah. um, a treatment center for a short while after AmeriCorps, and I, I couldn't wait to come back to CADA because mm. of the culture. Mm. Um, I also have a passion for the work um, that I think will keep me in it for the long run. Mm. Well, and, uh, funding's of critical importance for sure because, uh, if, I mean, high turnover on jobs um, and or lack of security from like an organizational standpoint doesn't, certainly doesn't do a good job of helping the people that they're trying to help. Um, I think making sure that there's stability within the culture, within the employees, within the um, directors of a space is probably critical and in, in being able to help people and um, make things better. And I know um, here in Mankato, we're really fortunate to have CADA and uh, appreciate all the work that you and that organization do. Thank you. Yeah. Um, is there anything else we'd like to leave people with somewhere that they can uh, engage directly with CADA in, in support or again, if they need any kind of support themselves, maybe how to get in touch? Yeah. So I would add, in addition to, you know, contacting your local lawmakers like we've been talking about, you can also be directly involved with CADA. Um, we are always seeking volunteers and interns. Um, people can donate directly to us. Uh, we do have our annual fundraiser, Galentine's Day in February, and tickets for that are going on sale on December 20th. Uh, and we're also still looking for sponsors for that event. So that's another great way to support our organization. Um, reaching out and seeking education if you're part of a community group that could um, would be interested in learning more about CADA. We do all kinds of presentations from Domestic and Sexual Violence 101 to CADA services to um, a dom uh, domestic violence kind of first response, how to how to support a survivor in your life. And we're open to providing education um, that meets specific needs. So if there's a certain request that a community group has, we can see if that's something we can provide. Uh, so lots of ways to, to get involved um, right here in, in your community. Sure. Awesome.
Yeah. Well, uh, thanks again for everything you do personally yeah. and for being part of what seems like an extremely valuable community resource here in yeah. Mankato. Yeah. yeah. And we'll, we'll certainly provide some links in the description for how to contact Kata, uh for whatever your needs are and any other things you'd like us to provide there. Great. Thank you all so much. Thanks. Thank you.